Welcome to another TeachingAmericanHistory.org webinar, sponsored by the Ashbrook Center at Ashland University. TH.org is the leading online resource for documents-based study of American history, government, and civics for teachers, students, and citizens. Today's program is about McCulloch v. Maryland from 1819. Your moderator is Dr. Chris Burkett, co-chair of the Master of Arts in American History and Government program at Ashland University, with panelists Drs. Jeremy Bailey of the University of Houston and Dan Monroe of Millican University. Do either of you happen to know why it happens to be Maryland in particular that, um, that ends up well, already in the case? Yeah, that's a great question. I know the Maryland branch uh, under McCulloch was very uh, aggressive in uh, loaning and and uh, and engaged in a variety of speculative endeavors, and so it may be uh, that their uh, very their activity <laughs> was so pronounced that that uh, it prompted the Maryland uh, le legislature to hit them with that tax. Wow. Uh, I don't know that, that leads to the case. Go ahead. I'm sorry. But it was a state, almost all of the states had become yes. in the Okay. Oh, that's right. I mean, the states were very uh, energized, especially in the South, uh, because, you know, you have the fall of the price of cotton and, uh, and um, you know, uh, that and the fall of land values. I mean, they're, they're markedly, because they're so, as you know, they're so, the entire economy of the South is increasingly based on this one cash crop. So when it goes sour, everything else goes sour, and uh, and and so they were especially vociferous in their in their attacks on the bank. I mean, uh, uh, it's John Marshall actually says that he thinks the Bank of the United States produces the formation of political parties. It's the one issue, you know, as early as the 1790s. It's the one issue that's it's so contentious that that you know the first party system Marshall attributes it largely to the bank. Uh, and and uh, there's I think there's some measure of truth in that. I mean, the bank becomes so controversial, it roils American politics until Jackson finally puts a stake through it, <laughs> you know, uh, after 1833 uh, with the removal of the deposits. Right, right. Now, let me just say one more thing. I didn't mean to dominate the, the time, but one more thing I would say is I think the bank was a very constructive institution for a developing economy because it provided a stable currency um you know and and all kinds of helpful financial assistance to the uh to the nascent federal government so i think the bank was actually overall a good thing but it was difficult to explain you know the the it was difficult to explain to people when the bank had to cover its cover itself because of, of its excessive loans it was easy to demagogue it it was easy to, to see it as a villain and and it has to be said too that the bank's management often did stupid things or unethical things, you know, got involved in politics, uh, made loans based on, uh, you know, personal relationships and you know, all the things that you're not supposed to do uh, in an institution like that. So it was often its own worst enemy. Very interesting. So was the bank, so, so among, the, among the populace, the bank was generally unpopular. Is that a fair statement or, or not? No, I think that's true. I mean, uh, there's no doubt about it. I mean, and, and it has to be said, too, that the, the emerging Jacksonian Democratic Party had a kind of, uh, you know, they, they embraced the agrarian ideal, and they really had a kind of stunted view of what banking and what banks could do. You know, if you look at Andrew Jackson's ideals, for example, well, he, he had a bad experience early in his career 
banknotes where he'd been paid for some kind of service by banknotes from a state bank, and then the bank went belly up. And so Jackson was left holding worthless paper, which was not an, which was not an unusual experience at this time. Well, after that, as far as Jackson was concerned, every bank was a kind of swindle. <laughs> well, you know, he didn't differentiate between, you know, some state bank that forms in Tennessee and is a kind of fly-by-night operation that may, in fact, be a swindle, and the Bank of the United States that's chartered by the United States government has board you know, five of its board of directors are appointed by the federal government. I mean, that's a much different entity, you know, than the bank of uh, something Tennessee. But he couldn't make that, uh, he couldn't make that transition. And, and so, you know, they, Jackson thought every uh, transaction should be uh, conducted in coin or gold. Well, that, you know, that certainly would protect the value of whatever goods and services you were selling. But in a, an emerging economy, there's not enough coin to go around uh to to fuel uh, economic growth you end up basically with a barter economy which is a kind of natural curb on economic growth so the the you know the bottom line is jacksonian uh economic views were stupid <laughs> you know i mean it just has to be said i mean it was it was based on a kind of uh, a natural prejudice associated with banks and it's just it's tra it's really tragic because up until you know until the civil you know after 1833 until the Civil War, you really don't have, you know, you've got these, you know, state banks providing notes of that wildly fluctuate in value or just disappear. Uh, and it really retards, you know, the country was growing anyway, despite that. But, you know, how much better would it have done if you had had a consistent national entity providing a consistent medium of value in, in the form of a currency to, to fuel economic growth? That's very interesting. Hey, Jeremy, uh, Dan's been talking, of course, you've been listening, Dan, but since Dan's brought up the sort of the uh, Jacksonian approach to these sorts of things, had the parties, to the extent that there were parties, maybe you can talk a little bit about this, um, really drawn hard lines in the sand with regard to economic policy and especially with regard to a bank? How did the, in other words, I guess I'm wondering, how did the parties, in the sense that they're developing at this time, uh, how were they affected by the bank issue, and how did they affect the uh, the bank issue? Yeah, so um, I I think the way that Dan has, has laid this out is very helpful, and um, I, I don't have any uh, sort of sort of objections. But there are just two 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 things that I would add to it to round out the picture. Uh, one one is a small point, and that is the on the my understanding uh, is on the on the um, as far as was Maryland the only one doing this. I believe so. You have state ba banks, and state banks are issuing banknotes. So you have the, the the Bank of the United States issuing banknotes. You have state banks issuing banknotes, and for a variety of reasons, uh, after 1816, some of the states think that the Bank of the United States has an unfair advantage in issuing its notes. And so, in order to give its their own state banks a competitive advantage, they issue, they put a tax on the banknotes issued by the Bank of the United States. And so, I believe that something like nine states had issued such tax. Now, why is it McCulloch versus Maryland, or, or what is the? So it could have been any other state. I think um, uh, it just happened to be, be Maryland, but but there there are eight others that I think that they were doing this. Um, more broadly, I guess one difference uh, that that Dan and I have in setting this up is I I don't I wouldn't characterize um, the state of the country uh, politically in terms of having a consensus around um, uh, the American program. Uh, in fact, uh, what, what is happening is, is uh, at least the way I see it, is, is, is after 1816, uh, you know, what, what we have, you know, 
commonly called the Arab good feelings, is, is a one-party system, right? The Federalists are gone. And so with the Federalists being gone, you have people like John Quincy Adams uh, who, are, who are naturally Federalists, who, who, are, who are in their DNA Federalists, but because they're involved in politics, have to be members of the Republican Party. Uh, and so the Republican Party for the next um, a couple of decades, um, will, will, even as it becomes Jackson's political coalition, um, has to wrestle with, with, with what its understanding of, of, of these kinds of questions are. And so that the bank is very divisive within, within, within the, 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 the Jeffersonians uh, in Virginia, for example, and Madison has to spend the last uh, two decades of his life in many ways sorting out uh, the implications of, of, of his uh, signing the, the bank bill in terms of, of Virginia Republican politics. Of course, uh, Monroe is left holding the bag and uh, for Monroe, this is a complete uh, fiasco because he has two radically different factions in his party with radically different understandings of, of what the direction of the country is going to be and then how that direction or those policy questions relate to the Constitution. So there's, there's a policy element to, and a policy difference, to be sure. There's also what emerges to be the constitutional difference. And in Monroe's hand, that really uh, uh, the flashpoint becomes internal improvements not so much the bank, because the bank becomes settled by, by, by McCulloch versus Maryland, uh, but it's internal improvements. And that's re that, that is the, 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 the question that divides the, the party uh, in 1824 and opens the door for, for, for the rise of Jackson. And, and it, uh, the, the question of Jackson then becomes, the, the, in many ways, the, the, the central question in the 1820s uh, with the way that the various political coalitions are, are, are forming. And so I would I would add that so I, I wouldn't I wouldn't agree I think with, with 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 Dan about there being a consensus. In fact, I would say that there's there's a, a um, because of the one party system, the Republican Party or Jefferson's political coalition is trying to figure out how to deal with these with with the implications of this post war of 1812 uh, national program that Clay and others are supporting supporting. Yeah, very, very. Thank you, Jeremy. That's very interesting. Uh, and I kind of want to come back to that in a minute, if you don't mind. We're getting mm -hmm. a few good questions coming in from participants. One had to do with Dan's comment earlier about uh, the, the, the fact that America was already participating in a world economy in um, by 1819 in the aftermath of the, the War of 1812. Uh, I think the question was something about why did we not realize we were, uh, did we not understand the world economy at this point? Uh, the politicians, do we do we not understand it? Was there even a concept of a world economy at this point in the minds of America? Well, I mean, you, you uh, let me just say two things. One is uh, you you have you, the country is changing from a coastal economy, uh, the kind of pre-war 1812 economy that is somewhat coastal in nature, to a more uh, and this was the whole point of Clay's American system, of course, to a more national economy, economy that includes. You know, not just, uh, you know, constant trade with Europe from Boston, Charleston, and so on and so forth, but um, an economy that includes all these new regions coming into cultivation. So that, you know, uh, but I think as far as the, the question, I think that's absolutely so. I think, I think the politicians recognized that the, you know, that trade with the world was a very important element of the economy. But they didn't, you know, it was difficult for them to see all the pieces together, you know, uh, and when things happen, uh, you get this kind of like you do anytime there's a recession or depression, you get this kind of rolling crescendo of, uh, 
of events and um um you know it's it, it, when it's happening it's it's you see just the trees but not the forest you know um one thing you know land prices start to fall because cotton prices are falling and the banks start banks state as as jeremy correctly pointed out states and uh, the national banks start to call in loans it becomes all one thing but at the time it's viewed as these certain discrete events and let me just say in response to jeremy i mean the 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 passage of the tariff and the passage of the national bank does suggest that there was at least some consensus on these matters but jeremy's quite right i mean there were lots of people i mean the so-called old republicans never accepted any of these things uh, and john tyler who someone wrote a book about mm-hmm. i can't think of the guy's name right now but the uh, <laughs> but the uh but what's tyler the never what's the title of that book yeah what's the title of that thing I'll i don't know. type it in the chat box yeah it's this is great stocking stuff for christmas but at any rate the uh the point is the uh, john tyler and others never accepted these uh these uh, elements of clay mm-hmm. system and i always thought the bank i mean there's a great line in one of tyler's speeches where he complains in 1816, 1818, you know, in this general time frame, I'm so tired of, of hearing the term national. You know, everything's going national. There's even a national oyster house now, uh, you know, in Washington, D.C. So Hugh, Jeremy's quite right. I mean, there's lots of dissension. Uh, lots of people are very uncomfortable with this, um, you know, the idea of, uh, uh, you know, a kind of uh, national government, the national government getting involved in the economy um, in the way that Clay uh, advocated. Very interesting. Um, we, we're getting some, again, really good questions coming in. And um, so far, uh, some of this discussion has, has reminded some people of the more recent uh, crises involving banks and, and lending and things like that. Uh, Lori asked about. Um, uh, let's see if I can find her question really quickly. Lori asked about uh, bank regulation. Um, do we have any kind of bank regulation? Uh, do we have someone keeping an eye on it or making sure they follow the rules? So I, I, I guess maybe could, could either of you or both of you say something in general about the kind of banks that they're actually creating? So we have the first bank, we have the second bank, and then there's the attempt to establish the third bank. What, what, were, the, what were the banks going to be like uh, and I ask this in part maybe as a way to get into the question, what about the banks um, on a on maybe on a higher political level were people really not fond of? So we can talk about Jackson's reasons for uh, for objecting and, and those sorts of things. I mean, how national? I mean, Dan, in light of what you were just saying today, you know, national national means something. National is everything today in, in popular parlance for better or worse. But how national were these, really, even by today's standards? Well, I mean, it's not uh, Chase Manhattan. I mean, there's not, you know, they're, they're not issuing credit cards that are ubiquitous uh, everywhere now. But after all, uh, the Second Bank of the United States did establish during this speculative fever, I think they had a branch in it of virtually every state. Uh, they were very aggressive. Um, the whole idea was to create a kind of uh, stable currency um, that would, uh, and, and also uh, make loans to state banks that pro- would provide them with some degree of stability as well. Um, but as Jeremy correctly pointed out, you know, state banks are issuing currency and, they're, and they fluctuate in value. I mean, there's really no 
regulatory check in the modern sense over the Bank of the United States that the, the you know there's congressional committees that investigate it, and indeed the bank did engage in practices. I mean, the Baltimore branch, for example, which uh, you know um, McCulloch was involved in, uh, was involved uh, engaged in some terrifically unethical acts, um, and the bank justifiably was uh, criticized for privileging some people uh, rather than others. You know, I mean, if you were a friend of the bank, you know, the bank would take care of you. And the, and it has to be noted that under Nicholas Biddle, uh, you know, who replaced Jones, who was the head of the bank in, in the period that we're talking about this morning, the bank got involved in a very naked way in politics. I mean, uh, Biddle came up with $100,000 and put it behind Clay in the 32 election. So, you know, it has to be said, I mean, I, you know, I made some remarks earlier. I do think the bank overall was a constructive institution in this period. And frankly, I think it would have been better had it continued rather than had a stake put through its heart by Jackson. But having said that, there's really no uh, oversight other than the Congress. And, uh, and, and it is vigorously investigated by congressional committees periodically and subjected to criticism. But it's not like there's uh, an SEC. <laughs> you know, to keep to keep keep an eye on it, yeah. and the result is it does engage in uh, in some unethical activities uh, through, really throughout its existence. Yeah, let me. Uh, I think that's all uh, very uh, clarifying. And um, the I was wondering. Uh, so, so first of all, with with the 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 point that the Dan just made about Biddle putting a hundred thousand dollars into the eighteen thirty two election. The first question I, I, you know, I always ask myself about that is, is uh, well, how much is that in today's money? It's got, it's got to be a ton of money. Uh, <laughs> yes. But, but second of all, in terms of the, of if we were to have a pie chart of the money spent on on the eighteen thirty two election, it would have to uh, uh, far in terms of a proportion of influence outweigh the kinds of things that we see from, uh, you know, the Koch brothers or Sheldon Alvison or, or Soros uh, in today's. <laughs> In today's campaign finance uh, world, so it was, it was a, that was a big deal. Um, I would I would push that that concern back all the way to the beginning um, as as a policy matter, and this is not the not the constitutional stuff so much, uh, which which we should talk about. But as, as a policy matter, Jefferson and Madison's objections really can't be separated out from the fact they thought that Hamilton was using the bank to reward his friends. That uh, this this was really and and they, and they were probably right. Uh, and, uh, and and it, it matters that it was part of a scheme, the assumption plan, the report on manufacturers, which were both explicitly on their face would reward certain people, and those certain people happen to be guys like Hamilton. And um, so there's, there's, there's the stench of corruption, if not corruption, corruption itself, it was was always around uh, the bank, and so this is something that that Jackson picks up on, you know, later. Uh, but but it, it it goes all the way back to the very beginning, to to, to the sparkle in Hamilton's eye. That is that Hamilton's critics believe that Hamilton's friends are profiting from from this plan. And it's all it's got to be tied too, Jeremy. I would think to just a general disagreement with between Madison and Jefferson on one hand and Hamilton on the other of their vision. The sort of vision of the economic future of the United States and how that will impact not just social life but political life. 
So H- Hamilton got all these plans for supporting manufacturing and more vigorous national program in general toward the economy. Mm-hmm. And uh, and we know, and maybe you can speak a little bit about this if you if you don't mm-hmm. mind. We know that politically, Madison and Jefferson distrusted Hamilton because he was more. Uh, uh, how did they how did they put it? What he, he was described as a what they call him a monocrat, mm-hmm. I think. Um, uh, politically, Hamilton was inclined toward uh, a stronger national government at the expense of uh, what Madison and Jefferson mm-hmm. understood to be the more um, essential forms of republicanism. So can, can you talk a little bit about how the political disagreements between Jefferson and Madison on the one hand and Hamilton on the other uh, affected or shaped the debates in the 1790s over the National Bank? Yeah, so, so just, just uh, I'll say something um, broadly in a second, but on one specific. Um, the, on, on the report on manufacturing, um, it, it is true that, that Jefferson and Madison objected to uh, the kind of nation that uh, Hamilton envisioned, um, and that is that that there would be um, this this uh, reliance on, on domestic manufacturing. Jefferson famously thought that this was a bad idea. It would it would produce an economic uh, a climate in which people were dependent on things like markets. To be dependent on something would would, would to be a slave to something. So to the extent that I'm dependent on some sort of market for something makes me less independent. As, as a person and less independence is bad. That, that's the basic logic. There's also something uh, more, more direct than that, and that is that on its face, the manufacturing report would pick winners and losers. That was the whole point, is that the government was gonna be in the business of encouraging manufacturing, and that means it was gonna be in the business of picking winners and losers. Hamilton had a grand scheme for this, prizes and bounties and subsidies that uh, he lays out. Uh, and so there's a kind of, um, um, uh, debate here about that. And the most important thing to remember there is that Hamilton is not a, f- a free market person. This is not uh, uh, Adam Smith come to America. This is a completely different uh, vision for economic life. And that vision includes somebody like Hamilton, somebody in the national government with their finger on the scales uh, in order to guide the national economy. This is not Adam Smith's invisible hand. If anything, that's closer to the Jefferson position. Now, Now, stepping back to the more broad point, and that is, uh, when we talk about Jefferson and Madison, it's important to acknowledge, I think, some differences between the two. And the most interesting difference, which we can tease out maybe, is, is, is that Madison was actually for the bank before he's against it. Uh, so, so, so on, uh, yeah, so on, 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 That's right, on, I know. Yeah, he was, he was for the bank before he's against it, and then, then he's for the bank after he's against it. Right. Uh, so he, he moves several times on the bank. And so his, his, his signing... You know, the bank bill, which, which he tried to justify throughout his life, and that, that's an interesting thing in, in itself, um, is, is a deviation, but it's not a deviation uh, from, from his position in, you know, in, in the late 1780s. Um, Madison is the right. person at the convention who proposes the power to incorporate a national bank, and it's rejected at the convention. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so, so it's an interesting question about, in terms of the policy matter, the extent to which Jefferson and Madison agreed. Uh, they both agreed. That, that, that Hamilton should not have a bank in his hands. Uh, whether or not in the abstract a bank was a good thing for, for public policy, I think, I suspect that Jefferson and Madison probably disagreed about that. Uh, now, they agreed on the constitutional merits of the question, but... That, no, that's, that's fascinating. Yeah. You're right. So, by the way, yeah, Madison was in favor of not just incorporating banks, but I think he called for the ability for uh, internal improvements 
a national national university and other things at the convention, Jeremy, as you mentioned, that were all vetoed. So, um, so this then leads to another question that's a, a couple of good questions that have been submitted, actually. Um, one of them having to do specifically with your point about Madison was for it before he was against it and is for it after he was against it. So I'd like to talk about Madison's sort of, how do we think about Madison himself um, in, the set, in the late 1780s, then into the 1790s, and then as president with regard to the banks? One, one, point, one question of clarification, though. Larry submitted a question about Hamilton, since uh, I think one of you mentioned the corruption and the assumption plan. Larry says uh, he know, he's, he's read that there's been corruption, there was corruption in the assumption plan and in the beginning of the bank, and Hamilton accepted this as, quote, the price of doing business. Um, but can we say something about Hamilton personally? We're not saying that Hamilton himself was corrupt. Or, or how do we think about Hamilton? I, I, how, do we, how, do you, how do you take a Hamilton who says, I can live with the corruption? I know this is often related to yeah. the British system that he was fond of. Yeah, no, I, I think that this is, maybe thinking on my feet, this is akin to the doctrine of collateral damage. Uh, that, that, that it's, you know, an unpleasant fact of, 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 of creating good government. That it's going to have this stuff, and and, he, and you need to uh, you need to attract people who are going to invest and and, and attach their their reputations to government and, uh, and 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 their interest to government. In order, that has to be in their interest, and so so there's going to be some collateral damage in terms of in terms of ethics, some ethical collateral damage. Um, that doesn't bother Hamilton all that much. I don't think he's personally uh, uh, dipping his hand into into the bucket. Um, I, I don't think I don't think that's just what he was interested in, but but. Uh, and in terms of what I mean by the corruption of, of the assumption case, it, you know, Hamilton had a very plausible argument for the, why, why the government needed to assume the state debts and why you couldn't discriminate between the original holders of the debts and, 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 the, and the people, the speculators who bought them. Uh, and that that's a very sensible uh, argument, and I might even agree with it. The problem is, is that the fact that, 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 that on, at the level of appearance, the people who are, 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 are benefiting from that, from that deal are, are investor types who are more or less run in the same circles of Hamilton. Yeah, sorry, I had to find my unmute yeah. button. I apologize. Thanks very much. Uh, Let me just try, can I just chime in on this? Yeah. I just wanted to, I just wanted to, uh, to add a bit to Jeremy's point that he made about Hamiltonian interest. The first national bank, the bank's involvement in corruption, the first national bank, the uh, board of directors included many influential members of Congress. I mean, they weren't stupid, you know, they immediately, you know, plugged in okay. key members of Congress to the board of directors who then got all kinds of perks, <laughs> you know, from the first national bank. So this, you know, this question of corruption and Hamilton's acceptance of it, which I think Jeremy laid out quite, quite well, uh, that's, this would be something that Hamilton would say, well, it's, this is what we have to do. It's not, it's not, doesn't, you know, quite pass the smell test. But it is what it is. You know, we've got to we've got to get this thing off the ground, and we need it to be supported. So uh, the board of directors did include lots of key figures, and so naturally they supported it in Congress. Very interesting. Um, yeah, no, that's very interesting. Um, I was looking for another question again uh, from uh, from one of our participants. Uh, had to do with Madison. I can't find the question in my list, but. Um, Jeremy, Dan, can you talk a little bit about more about talk a little bit more about Madison in particular? Because this is one of these things that's hard to explain. Jeremy, you mentioned I think Madison had to justify his 
his um, what seemed like reversals on the national bank issue uh, throughout his life. Why, why, why was he for it, then against it, and then um, for it after 1812? Either of you want to speak a little bit more about Madison on this? I, I, I'll, I'm going to take a stab at it since I've, I've just finished writing a book, sort of wrestling with this for, for quite a while. And, and the, the short answer is that if, if you're looking for perfect consistency here, Madison is not going to satisfy you. Uh, and, and Madison indeed spent the last decade of his life try, trying to find a, a way to square the circle. And so, so I could lay that out. Um, so uh, his justification of signing the bank bill, so, so why, why he, he allowed the bank bill, in fact, he proposed the, the, the law and then, and then, and then, then signed it, um, was that his constitutional question had been uh, relieved by the fact that it had on, undergone uh, lots of debate between all the branches uh, and that the construction of the Constitution had been settled by, by that debate. And so that um, was now sufficient in terms of the meaning of the Constitution that some clauses in the Constitution aren't going to be perfectly clear. That's just a fact of, of constitutional life. And so there's going to need to be sort of grand deliberation through a constitutional process. And that process had happened and, and clarity uh, emerged. Now, that being said, he never, ever accepted Hamilton's reasoning for the constitutionality of the bank. He never accepted Marshall's reasoning for the constitutionality of the bank. And that there's a distinction there. Uh, so just as, as, as Madison, I'm sorry, just as Jefferson, for example, was okay with Washington's neutrality proclamation, he never accepted Hamilton's un, uh, constitutional defense of it. And so just because Madison, so, so that, that's sort of one, one, one point. Now let's go back. I think the more interesting case is, is, Ham, is, is Madison's decision to be against the bank in, in the 1790s, even though he was for it in the 1780s. So that, that to me, that's the one that's received less, less attention. And, and there, I think, the best uh, uh, um, uh, uh, argument is that Madison believed that the Constitution uh, was a very delicate uh, and contingent achievement, and that um, giving the appearance of pulling a fast one on the opponents to the Constitution would undermine the Constitution. And so even though he proposed a, 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 the, the, the bill for the bank in the convention, uh, he felt like it, in order to have the Constitution actually work, it had to work as it was understood by the, the people who, who proposed it and ratified it. Uh, and since, since he knew better than anyone that, that history, he felt like he had to be uh, uh, true to that history. Otherwise, the opponents of the Constitution would say, see, I told you so. They're really trying to pull a fast one on us. And so that, that, that I think, explains um, his, his defense of a constitution, in this case, with respect to the bank, that he didn't like, uh, that, that he thought was flawed. And so rather than, rather than Hamilton to say, to saying, look, this is an opportunity to fix that, and let, let's get the, con the bank back into the constitution by, by way of this, this construction, Madison said, no, 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 that's dangerous. Uh, yeah, that's great, because we've just established the constitution. Yeah, you can't you can't, yeah. you can't you can't you can't go changing it uh, uh, when, when when we all know that that the bank was voted down. It'd be it'd be yeah. like changing the equality in the Senate, or, or well, that's more explicit. But there's all sorts of other examples that right. that uh, you know that the anti-federalists would just go crazy about. 
No, that's fantastic. Yeah, because then you're right. I mean, just from the perspective of what we call it, the optics, it looks like Federalists put one put certain language in there to make it palatable to to anti-Federalists or anti-Federal men, uh, if they weren't strictly anti-Federalists, uh, people who are suspicious of, of 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 stronger national government. And then the idea is, once we get it ratified, we just do whatever we want with it by a by a loose liberal construction right. of the document. That's fantastic. And that reminds me, Jeremy, of. Uh, of Madison's argument, is it Federalist? Uh, is it 49 or 50, where he's arguing about the? the um, uh, um, is that where he's arguing against uh, Jefferson's call for frequent or regular conventions that's, that's, to revise? 49. The 49, right? Yeah. So, I mean, constitutions take time to sort yeah. of establish themselves. Yeah. Um, now that that's consistent with his later position. Uh, People don't have to find this to be satisfactory, but but there is a kind of consistency with his later position. And the later position is, look, this was settled, and it's, and it's better to have a, a settled constitution than it is to have an unsettled one. Very interesting. So, so Madison um, is against the bank in the 1790s for reasons which I think are now much clearer in my mind, Jeremy. Thank you. Um, what affected the... Um, Let's talk about why Madison ended up approving the Second National Bank, and, and in particular, what what effect did the War of eighteen twelve have, perhaps, on uh, on Madison's decision? In addition to what you were just saying, Jeremy, yeah. he, he had uh, by this point we've had the Constitution for twenty years; it's 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 it's, it's established. Um, I'm wondering what other kind of political and economic factors may have influenced Madison's decision in in the eighteen uh, teens. Well, I, my, my, I'm going to give a short answer, then to defer to, to Dan here. Uh, my short answer is that, is that the realities of the war reminded him why why banks are convenient for for national government. <laughs> okay, Dan, you still there? Do you have any thoughts on this? Yeah, I, I think that's quite right. I think um, um, the, you know the war was a, had a profound effect on uh, some of these uh, Jeffersonian sensibilities and uh, and lots of uh, 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 Jeffersonians uh, are people with that Jeffersonian agrarian sensibility um, you know were prepared to make some concessions to Federalist policies in, in the wake of the disaster. I mean after all the national capital was burnt to the ground uh, you know that's usually a sign that the war went poorly you know, when your national capital is burned to the ground. <laughs> yeah. So, so yeah, I think that's. I think Jeremy's exactly right. I think Madison was prepared to tolerate things that um, he previously may have found obnoxious uh, in the wake of of experience. And to me, that's a sign of a, that's a sign of a healthy political uh, leadership. I mean, of course, you don't want to have a rigid ideologue who, regardless of uh, you know, facts and reality on the ground uh, adheres to policies that clearly altered. So I don't. I, I think that's a strength. You know, I think something. You know, we we live in a in an age where uh, I think students and to a certain extent intellectuals are, are are anxious to point out every smidgen of perceived hypocrisy on the part of uh, political figures uh, and, and um, you know, in, in a kind of, uh, you know, the be- with the benefit of hindsight. But the reality is that's, I, th- I think when political leaders act in response to real events and alter their views, that's a good thing. 
you know, you know, depending on how they alter them, I mean, it may be a bad thing, but the, you know, providing some degree of flexibility, uh, I don't, I see as a strength rather than a weakness. Yeah, it seems like what we call hypocrisy today back then would have been, could have been anyway, you know, what you might call judgment, prudence. Right. Uh, no, exactly. Statesmanship. You know, you, yeah. you make the best decision possible in, in light of the consequences and the, the, within the limits of the possible. So. Oh, absolutely. And, uh, um, you know, the, the post-war of 1812 legislative agenda makes perfect sense uh, in light of the uh, war. Of course, there should have been internal improvements. Of course, you needed a national bank to provide some financial stability when there was financial chaos during the war in the absence of the bank that after it expired in 1811. Of course, you should have a tariff uh, that privileges certain industries that are associated with national defense if you're going to be facing more or less, as it seemed at that time, maybe kind of a perpetual uh, challenges from European powers. I mean, it's, uh, it's, it's perfectly rational. Um, now, of course, it did, as, as we all know, it did prompt uh, the emergence of opposition, uh, but, but be that as it may, uh, it makes perfect sense for Madison to endorse these things in the wake of the war experience. Right. Hey, uh, and Dan, I think you just partially answered a question from Larry about uh, what specifically about not hang, having a bank hindered the country, the economic stability that the bank could afford or could uh, Right. I mean, after, you know, the bank, it always has to be borne in mind that the bank was the uh, financial agent of the federal government. Uh, it's where the tariff money was deposited and the bank, in effect, acted as the clearinghouse as the government paid its bills. Well, when the bank is, was gone, those uh, responsibilities were distributed to certain state banks and you had this chaotic system because state banks you know, were uh, tended to be, you know, chaotically managed. Right. You know, some were very well managed, others not so well. Right. And, uh, the, you know, the result was no kind of central clearinghouse for the federal government to run its war effort. Everything was scattered about. So it, it led to, you know, it, it let, really the federal government in the War of 1812, I mean, it just has to say, pretty much came close to breaking down. I mean, it ceased to function in a coherent way. Uh, it was awful. And everyone, you know, to the to the political class, you know, the political leadership's credit, they all recognized this. You know, they all got this at the end of the war. It was a kind of chin, you know, mass chin pulling session where they all recognized, gee, you know, this really went poorly. <laughs> and we need to, you know, we need to avoid this again. And so, uh, and John Calhoun, in one of the few acts uh, of value to the country that he performed, <laughs> you know, John, John Calhoun kind of lays this all out, <laughs> you know, Calhoun, to his credit, lays this all out in a in a speech uh, defending the tariff, uh, you know, and going through the list of all the terrible things that had happened during the course of the War 1812 and the natural remedies for them. Uh, so, you know, it, it's, yeah, I mean, it was, it's just, I think it's made perfect sense that all these things were embraced. Yeah, I remember also reading, for example, I mean, the, the broad problems you were just laying out, Dan. Um, I, I, I also remember, you know, just simple things, what seemed like simple things, paying soldiers, being able to provide or, you know, purchase ammunition and provisions. I mean, it took forever through this chaotic bank state quasi, you know, national system. Uh, it's just a mess. Um, yeah. The point I, that people were borrowing to, to fund the war effort, so. 
I, I would like to add here, just in, just in a way, just that this is an attempt to sort of uh, maybe maybe shift some of our conversation. And uh, in, in, in talking about the, the policy merits of, of the bank, it seems that we're, we're discussing the issue from, from the perspective of, of Hamilton and Marshall to begin with. Uh, and and, and it, seems, it seems to me that there are two sort of big lurking questions in encountering this, 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 this opinion. Um, one is uh, the historic question. And the historic question is what do, what do Marshall and Hamilton do with the fact that they both know that the, the, the provision to delegate a bank was, was, or to create a bank was voted down in the convention itself? So, so what, do, what, do, what do sensible people make of that fact? How big a problem is it? The other question is, is what limiting principle is there in their logic? Does their logic uh, allow for any limited principle uh, with respect to the interpretation of government? And is that a problem? So, for example, Daniel Webster uh, is the one arguing this case for the Supreme Court, the great, the great argument for implied powers. Yet Daniel Webster, for the next 20 years of his life, is going to give exactly the opposite argument against implied powers for Jackson. And so implied powers are okay for Congress, but not implied powers for the executive. And so, so Daniel Webster is not wholly comfortable with implied powers generally. He's only comfortable if, if Congress is controlling those implied powers. And that requires a principle. And so what's my question for, 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 for people encountering this is, so what would be the limiting principle uh, that Hamilton and Marshall uh, have? And is, is there one? And if, and if there's not a limiting principle, you know, is this thing that they're interpreting still a constitutional on behalf of limited government? So there. Great question. <laughs> By the way, so I'm glad you're seeing the conversation. That's fabulous. <laughs> yeah, that's fantastic. Uh, that's great. Um, um, because I wanted to move towards the, the decision itself, McCulloch yeah. v. Maryland, uh, uh, McCulloch v. Maryland here a little bit to maybe get into Marshall's reasoning since you're bringing this up, and maybe how it relates to Hamilton's opinions back in the 1790s. Um, so maybe as a way to get into that, since we started with Madison, maybe to follow this through. Uh, we, uh, we asked people to read this letter to Spencer Roan uh, from Madison on the on the McCulloch v. Maryland decision. Um, can anybody say anything about what it, why what is Madison's objection to the opinion that Marshall writes in McCulloch v. Maryland? If we know he's not necessarily against, if he no longer believes that all national banks are unconstitutional, is there something specific? Well, I, I think it's it's it's. Um precisely the, the concern that, that I just laid out, that, that Marshall went too far. Yeah, that's, uh, that's, and, my, and, that's my hunch. Yeah, and, and, and so there's, there's the seriatim opinion stuff. Uh, so, so why, why did Marshall um, uh, depart from seriatim opinion? In other words, uh, each individual justice issuing their own opinion. So Marshall's move to, to issue opinions of the court was, was, it was a move to, to create a clarity about constitutional meaning and that's enhance the power of judiciary that the massive perspective here is artificial. That that's yeah. a very interesting development that students probably ought, 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 ought to be pointed to. Um, but I think simply that Marshall goes too far. He went out of his way uh, to, to establish a principle, and the principle itself is suspect. Interesting. Did did Marshall? Uh, would Madison and others have thought Marshall engaged in uh, orbita dicta in this? I mean, does he does he go beyond the, the question that is presented to the court? In, in opening the door up to, uh, or opening the Constitution up to such expansive judicial review, but maybe that's not, what is it about the case or the opinion in particular? Um, uh, maybe we can talk about this from from Marshall's point of view, and then from the sort of opposing point of view. Um, 
I mean, I could chime in. I I think, uh, let me just say this. I think uh, this is kind of just a general comment about Marshall. I think Marshall uh, saw himself as defending the federal government. You know, again, this this is why the context is so important. I mean, you have the whole, this is 1819, the whole country's being roiled by the panic, and the Bank of the United States is under attack uh, in all these states via these taxes. Uh, placed on its currency. And so I think that uh, Marshall's response, you know, the context kind of explains Marshall's expansiveness and his aggressiveness. I think he saw himself as defending the sovereignty of the federal government against an attack by states uh, that would have, uh, if permitted, would have uh, effectively turned the country back to the, uh, in his view, the Confederation period. Uh, so uh, that, that's why, you know, I think he's, he's so aggressive. It's the context that explains his, his, his approach to the decision and is, and is a very aggressive approach to the decision, his, you know, his insistence on unanimity and so on and so forth. Yeah, the decision, the opinion, has at least two parts. Um, the, first part, the first part of it has to do with Marshall dealing with that question, right? Can a state tax, can a state tax a, a national bank branch within the limits of that state? And it seems as though Madison could have just invoked the supremacy clause here and, and just sort of been done with it. But he goes on, and it's Marshall himself who frames the question before the court, I believe, right? This is right at the beginning of the opinion. The first question made in the, case, in the cause is, has Congress power to incorporate a bank? Now, I, I believe uh, Maryland had argued, by the way, it was Luther Martin, wasn't it, arguing on behalf of Maryland? Yeah, of the, no, that's right. Yeah. Uh, of the Constitutional Convention, uh, former Attorney General. I, I believe Maryland made two arguments. One, that given the nature of the union, the compact under the Constitution, states could, in fact, tax a national bank. And two, the national bank was a national bank, any national bank, I believe, was unconstitutional. But Marshall says the big question before us at the beginning is, has Congress, has Congress the power to incorporate a bank? He goes on, he invokes, I think, the Supremacy Clause to deal with the, the question of states taxing a national bank branch. But then he gives a lot of time, he devotes a lot of thought or, or a lot of words uh, to, to um, how does he put it, uh, expounding the Constitution. So maybe can we walk through his log, uh, his argument here a little bit, or explain his his reasoning here um, from a constitutional perspective, Jeremy? Perhaps, if you don't mind. Okay. So there's there's the there's the there's the bit about the Tenth Amendment. Uh, so so remember that that for Jefferson, the foundation of the government is the Tenth Amendment. And and you might say, well, how can how can how can a Tenth Amendment, which came along later, be the foundation? Uh, Jefferson said, well, it's a principle that, 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 that animates the entire Constitution, and that's the, everything not, not delegated is, is reserved to the states or the people. And so, so Marshall deals with that by saying, well, look, this word expressly was removed. Uh, and so uh, the original uh, proposal said not all power is not expressly delegated. And so in removing that, uh, that the framers of the Tenth Amendment um, were, were, uh, assumed that there would be some powers that would, would, would be implied. And in making that argument, Marshall... Uh, I knew uh, that that he was uh, there. This is more than just a clever argument, because in fact, James Madison is the very person who proposed removing the word expressly for that very reason. 
that 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 that, that the word expressly would would um, uh, bind the government too much. And so 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 there's there's a there's a kind of uh, uh, a logic there, though. You know, it is again interesting that that Marshall would refer to the to sort of the debates about the Tenth Amendment, but not refer to the debates in the Constitution about about the bank itself. Uh, there, there's a kind of you know irony there. Um, now we should also point out that that back in the debates over Obamacare, uh, I remember in the Republican debates, both both uh, my own governor Rick Perry and then the governor of Massachusetts Mitt Romney both quoted the Tenth Amendment. And when they quoted the Tenth Amendment, uh, they both included the word expressly. Uh, which is uh, an, an interesting sort of uh, a factual error because they, yeah. they, 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 they made the same, the very mistake that Marshall said don't make. Uh, now, the, the, the larger principle is this, you know, let the end be legitimate, let the means be plainly adapted to that end, that's the, the famous statement. And, and what the, the basic logic there is, look, governments are created to do certain things. And, and this goes straight to Hamilton. Governments are created to do certain things and once you can agree on the ends of government, um, the, qu the next question is, 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 is that, and, and, you, and once you can agree to give the government control over that end, and that, in this case, uh, regulating finance, uh, controlling money, et cetera, et cetera, then the means that are, that, are, that, are, that are plainly adapted to it, as long as they're not forbidden, are going to be part part of uh, uh, the, the grant of power to, to the government. Now, Madison would say in response to that, well, if that's the case, if Congress has control over the, the war power, why do they also have the power to raise armies? And why do they also have the power to do this? Why are those other parts that are adapted to that end also explicitly laid out in the Constitution? So there are other parts in the Constitution where, where both the ends and the means are clearly laid out. And so why, why so, so the, it raises a question of why are some means you know, included and, and others aren't. Doesn't that, doesn't that present a problem for the laws? But back back to the Marshall, the basic point is: look, governments do certain things, uh, and once you agree on delegating control over a particular end, um, the means are, are less important in terms of, of, of figuring out whether or not uh, they have been explicitly delegated or not, because they're going to be implicitly delegated, um, and that derives from the very nature of constitutional government itself. And that is that constitutions have to be broadly written because they have to exist in a world where there are going to be certain exigencies. Uh, he, he references the War of 1812 uh, that are going to um, uh, get in the way of, 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 of laws that would be read as a mere kind of statute. And so the so the I'm going back a little bit, Jeremy. There's a lot there's a lot of information there, all of which was very very useful and interesting. But um, looking at Marshall's opinion, and you you, you quoted a little bit from this. Uh, toward the end of his argument with regard to whether the power to create a national bank is implied because it's a legitimate means to the end of mm -hmm. fulfilling those purposes of government. Here's his, here's his criteria. Let the end be legitimate. Let it be within the scope of the Constitution and all means which are appropriate, which are plainly adapted to that end, which are not prohibited. Right? There's the reference to the, there's no expressly in there but consists with the letter and spirit of the Constitution are constitutional. And, I, and that raises all kinds of questions in my mind. Um, on the one hand, he says this at the end of a paragraph where he says, look, we all know that the powers of government are limited. But, but I, I have to wonder, do, does that actually limit the powers of government? Um, or, does it, uh, or does it really leave things open-ended? Because how do we know what ends are legitimate? How do we know 
what the what the spirit in addition to the letter of the Constitution is. Yeah. So those who determines those things. Yeah, and 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 I w- I would say so. Look, um, if if Marshall's end is workable workable government, then his then his logic is is is, is going going to win out, right? So if if the end is to have a government that works, then this this makes sense. But but if your end is different, if if your end is government by consent of the governed, then, then it's not so clear that that logic uh, works out, because you've got, you've got a different goal, and that that is to protect the the, the, the consent that people are giving. So you're going to, you're going to require utmost clarity of about about what what powers are given or not given. Right. But 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 if your end is a workable government, then 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 you're gonna you're gonna follow that logic much more much more easily. Yeah, and I would say I would again I suspect that. This there are uh, federalist, national Republican, if you want to call them that, but federalist views of what the legitimate ends of government and what a workable government would be, and then there are Republican uh, understandings of these sorts of things. So, uh, by the way, last week or two weeks ago, we had our first Saturday webinar, and we had a great conversation about uh, Marbury v. Madison and talking about uh, Marshall's opinion in that case, and one of the things that came up was the idea that Marshall, a lot of Federalists knew that politically Federalists were, had suffered, a, a, you know, a, 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 set, a major setback in, in the election of 1800, and a lot of Federalists viewed the courts as maybe the last bastion of Federalism, or the last place where Federalists could have an impact on the future nature and scope of not just the government itself, but the policies, economic and political, that would flow from it. So um, I guess I'm wondering uh, if either of you want to say can say something about uh, Marshall's political motive, perhaps, in this particular opinion, assuming that he has political motives and isn't simply one of these uh, un- perfectly unbiased, objective uh, Supreme Court justices that we all hope and wish that we have, but maybe very rarely get. Is it possible Marshall had political motives in this opinion? Go ahead, Dan. I mean, I, I would say that uh, the answer is yes. I mean, I, I think I don't think Marshall was working in a vacuum, uh, you know, or in the, the the cone of silence. You know, I mean, he was very aware of what was going on uh, with regard to the uh, uh, conditions of the United States, and the decision is written in 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 the expansive way that it is, in part as an answer to those who are challenging the uh, supremacy of the federal government. I mean, remember uh, the Council for Maryland started uh, with uh, by uh, defining the United States as a, uh, the creation of a sovereign states entering into a compact. Oh boy! Yeah. Uh, you know, they go right to the reasoning that's the basis for later for nullification and secession. And uh, and Marshall responds to that in a very aggressive way, and, I, and I'm sure. That those who opposed nullification and and uh, secession later drew on this opinion, uh, on, among other things, of course, to respond to that. Uh, you know, Marshall stresses the sovereignty of the people, uh, not the states. So uh, that you know, just the fact that he would make that point within the opinion suggests his political sensibility. I mean, there's no doubt about it. And you know, that definitional argument, of course, of plagues the country uh, for the next 30 years. So absolutely, Marshall was a political animal. I mean, this is the thing about the Supreme Court, of course, 
these guys are are, are not uh, you know uh, sitting on Mount Olympus and and rendering judgments <laughs> in a <laughs> you know in a nonpartisan way. I mean you know they they are affected by the world that they live in and their own views of the world that they live in. That's well put. We have about uh, six or seven minutes left. Can we can we talk about um, the consequences of, of consequences of the decision? Building on what you were just saying, Dan. Uh, what were the economic consequences of Marshall's decision? Uh, the political consequences? Uh, how does this lead to uh, developments among the parties uh, leading up to Jackson's veto message, perhaps? Yeah, I mean, even in terms of our understanding of the Constitution and and perhaps the role of the court, what what are the major consequences of this case? I mean, uh, I'll just say a few things, and because we're out, running out of time, I'll throw it to Jeremy, and he can he can wrap up, and I'll I'll just say. Uh, you know, Marshall saves the uh, bank uh, from this particular assault, but the debate goes on. And uh, uh, in the in the Jacksonian orbit, they were spot. You know, they're not reconciled, obviously, to the bank. And all this does is is uh, affirm the desire of Jackson to get his people on the court. <laughs> you know, he he's uh, and and he's very intent on that. You know, uh, and and uh, makes a, an effort to put. People agree with their more, uh, you know, Jeffersonian philosophy with regard to the bank um, on the Supreme Court, and and indeed, as we all know, the second bank of the United States is um, immensely controversial in during Jackson's term. I mean, Jackson is constantly denouncing it as an institution of privilege, and of course, the election of 1832, it's it's the main issue around the election is turned in part because Clay and Nicholas Biddle made it, um, you know, their raison d'etre for running for the presidency in 32. But I think, I, I don't think there's any, any doubt that Jackson's approach to this appointing people to the Supreme Court was driven in part by his desire to respond uh, to this these kind of decisions. Now I'll just throw it to Jeremy here. Yeah, uh, so... Um, uh, for first, one small point uh, on on Marshall's definition uh, that I'm glad, very glad that Dan reminded us of this, um, that the people uh, created the Constitution. Uh, this is one of the things that Madison would have objected to. Uh, to Madison's deathbed, Madison insisted that his Federalist 39 was 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 the the, the best word on understanding the federal nature of the Constitution, and in that uh, definition. For Madison, the states created the Constitution. Their state ratifying conventions, more precisely, created the Constitution, and that was a, a, a crucial difference between between he and Marshall to, to the very end. Um, the consequences, well, on, on the one, I, I'm tempted to say that that it confirmed uh, Brutus's fear that when you have a, a debate about the scope of federal power, uh, that um, it, it, it shows that. Uh, well, surprise, surprise, uh, national judges are going to side with the national government. Um, that that's that's what Brutus worried about, and, and it seems like Brutus is more or less uh, perceptive on that. Uh, though I, I would moderate that with saying, pointing out that that you know the emergence of Jackson reminds us that listen, Jefferson's political coalition more or less dominated the country for for the next 100 years. That that the 19th century really is the story of Jefferson's political coalition um, uh, uh, holding on to power in, in some way. There there you know some exceptions, the Civil War and the the um, and, and the kind of death match between Democrats and Republicans after the, after the Civil War, um, but but really, you know, it is it is a Jeffersonian century 
uh, in so in so many ways. And so, in many ways, Marshall's victory is latent. It's not it's not it's not um, uh, immediate. I, I would say uh, it's not until the 20th century where Marshall where, where the logic becomes so much more important. Very interesting. Would you would you say, Jeremy, that because um, I've I've heard this from various scholars, read this that that Marshall either attempted he attempted to and perhaps succeeded in establishing the Supreme Court as uh, as if not the most powerful and important branch of the of the national government at least equal to the other branches is uh, what's the effect i guess i'm wondering what's the effect of marshall's decision in this case on the the, the role of the supreme court in our in our government have any thoughts on this well okay so so to this day the united states uh has an independent judiciary that that knocks acts of congress down that that makes the united states more or less uh, the outlier in, in all of world politics. There, there are a few exceptions, but this this is one of the the, the features of American exceptionalism. Um, parliamentary supremacy is is a, is a much more usual uh, a fact of political life, uh, of democratic political life, and the fact that we have a Supreme Court that is so active in our politics has to be credited to John Marshall, uh, not wholly credited to John Marshall, but 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 credited uh, substantially to John Marshall, and and it's a tremendous achievement. Uh, that and, and probably almost impossible to overstate. Very interesting. Thanks. Um, what about? Uh, can we say something about Jack? We have just a few minutes left. What about? Uh, let's maybe wrap this up. Bookend it nicely, I guess, with with Jackson here at the end and his 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 particular reasons for opposing the the the, the rechartering of the of the bank, the National Bank in '32, and. Um, in what, in what sense was Jackson's veto message a, a direct response to Marshall? Well, I, I don't. I would just say I don't think there's. Uh, if you look at the veto message, um, I don't think there's any doubt that that. Uh, I, I, I guess I would say I don't know that Jackson was necessarily responding in a kind of point by point way to this decision and the Marshall, in particular. But what Jackson does suggest in a, well, a general way is that the uh, Marshall Court got it wrong, you know, that the bank was unconstitutional. It was, and and he attacks it on multiple fronts, not only its constitutionality, but it, it's, uh, in his view, it's unethical actions. You know, he goes through a laundry list of all of the bank's sins and uh, and finds it uh, wanting. Um, right. And I do think, you know, I think, I, I am not, uh, I, and I've said this in other contexts, I think the Jacksonian approach to uh, the economy was terribly flawed. But I do think that Jackson was correct about the bank engaging in activities that quite, quite correctly could be termed corruption. You know, if Nicholas Biddle is, is appointing people or, you know, Jones, whoever's the bank is appointing people who are politicians or influential people and, and then giving them favorable treatment on loans, well, uh, you know, come on. Uh, I mean, that's de facto uh, or de jure corruption. So, yeah. uh, you know, his the, the, his his critique has lots of strengths. Yeah. Now, so, uh, Karen, a long time ago, had submitted a question on this point you raised earlier, Dan, about Jackson. Just had a general distrust of banks, both national and state banks. But uh, it's. It, is is Jackson really opposed to any bank, or is he just particularly opposed to this bank 
that he vetoed. Doesn't Jackson suggest either in his veto message or in, in, in letters that had he consulted with or had Congress consulted with him, he could have made recommendations for that to them? Well, that's what he, yeah, no, that's quite right. I mean, that's what he says. And, and there may be some element of truth to that. I mean, who knows? I mean, he ended up uh, vetoing it and, and uh, exercising all this distaste for the bank. Uh, and, and it may well have been driven by, you know, Jackson was a very partisan man and took every dispute, political dispute uh, personally, <laughs> as we all know. So the fact that uh, Clay and Biddle moved against him and used the bank as a vehicle to do that really, you know, uh, excited his anger and his distrust. But he does show, I mean, I mean, you're quite right, Chris. He does show some flexibility early in his first, you know, his first term about the bank. Um, uh, And I think if, if, uh, if Clay and his partisans had been willing to work with him, maybe he would have accepted some kind of a bank that was less, the kind of muscular thing that Clay preferred. I mean, Jackson, you know, Jackson's bank would have been some kind of somewhat truncated in the in the capital that the government provided, and the and then the uh, flexibility that the president of the bank had to appoint the board of directors and things like. You know, Jackson wouldn't have accepted the kind of muscular bank that it was. He would have put limitations on it. But there is some suggestion. I mean, you're quite right. It's a very perceptive read on Jackson's letters and, and early messages. He suggests some flexibility, but then in the end, he, he, you know, I think his prejudice is ruled, perhaps in part because of the partisan way that the bank was being used. Well, I mean, as Jeremy pointed out, $100,000 in the 1832 campaign was a hell of a lot of money, <laughs> uh, you know, that uh, by the standards of the time that Bill was dumping into the Clay campaign. Interesting. Very interesting. Yeah, and I, I, again, in the in his Jackson's veto message, um, he mentions at the beginning that he finds this bank, this bank, this particular bank, unconstitutional. But, but his main arguments are it undermines states, it undermines the rights of the states, um, it opens the door to corruption, as we've mentioned earlier. Right, a few a few men will get rich, and it also opens the door to foreign influence, which we didn't really touch on too much. But um, those seem to me more. Uh, pragmatic or prudential arguments, some of them, you know, practical arguments, than they are, uh, or economic arguments more than they are even constitutional arguments. But, but well, it has, it has to be said that the uh, the foreign uh, foreign investors in the bank were not allowed to vote uh, on uh, issue. You know, and, you know, they were prohibited by the charter from having any kind of influence on the bank beyond uh, their investment. So some of that, some of that was, I think, some of that Jacksonian concern with foreign involvement of the bank was simply a way to appeal to the masses. You know, uh, it was, you know, it was an easy issue to get some uh, juice out of if you wave the foreign menace, you know, in front of people <laughs> in this time. You know, uh, and so, so one of one of our uh, uh, one of the people just chimed in on the chat line. You know, was there a lot of concern in Jackson's day of foreign influence? Absolutely. You know, after all, the you know, uh, the United States has just fought the, a second war with the uh, the British in, in recent memory in everyone's lifetime. So uh, some of that, I think some of the concern of foreign interests was simply to play to the galleries because they really didn't have any any real power. Uh, and, and, and as uh, as uh, uh, proponents of the banks argued, why shouldn't we take the money of, the, of Brits and, uh, and French investors? Right. Of course, right. we should. Yeah. Very good. 
Well, this does this affect one last question. We're a little bit over, but we started a few minutes late, so I appreciate both of you sticking around for a few extra minutes. Does this effectively kill the idea of a bank? I mean, officially, there is no bank after this, right? I'm just wondering if I usually get questions from people: What does this? What is this series of arguments over a national bank? What effect does it have ultimately on the decision to create a Federal Reserve system? Um, you know, instead of a national banking system. Is there any connection? Or is that too big of a question to end with here with one minute left? I don't, I, I, I can't answer that question though. I'll repeat the, the one thing that I can't, that I learned from, from Landy and Milkus, and that is the bank acted like what we call the reserve in the sense that it's setting a kind of monetary policy, but it's also issuing loans and making money. And so, 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 so in that sense, it was, it was acting both like a private bank and, and like a, a financial policymaker, uh, which would open up the, the doors for influence. The, the specific connection to, to post-Jackson uh, and, and on to the 20th century, I, I can't lay that out. Probably too big. Sorry for raising it. <laughs> no, and I, I, think, I think that's right. I think there's, there's so much time has passed between the uh, Jackson killing the National Bank, Second National Bank, and Federal Reserve, it's hard to, to, to make a connection. But it, it should be said, though, I think it, it can be said that Jackson doomed the bank for 30 years. I mean, there's nothing there's nothing comparable until the uh, Lincoln administration and Civil War. Right. And it was it was, it, it, you know, he pretty much put a stake through its heart. Mm-hmm. And and I think it was a bad thing. I mean, I, I really the developing economy needs that kind of financial stability that the bank could provide. Hmm. Very interesting. Well, I want to thank you both again very much for being here this morning and especially for sticking around after our technical troubles at the beginning. Uh, A lot of great information came out from this conversation, and I have more to think about. So, gentlemen, thank you so much. I appreciate your time. Thank you. It was a pleasure. It's great to be with you and Jeremy. Really nice. Thank you. Good. And uh, thanks to our panel, our, uh, our participants, for some great questions. Just a reminder, you'll get an email with a link for a certificate of participation. Uh, If you've enjoyed our conversation today, this is kind of how we do things pretty much in our master's courses. So if you're interested in an online graduate course, uh, take a look at what we offer through our uh, um, Master of American Heart, uh, Master of Arts in American History and Government program. You can find out more about that at TAH.org. Our next Saturday webinar will be October 15th. It'll be on Dred Scott v. Sanford, and we'll be joined by Lucas Morrell of Washington and Lee University, and Jonathan White of Christopher Newport University. So hope to see you all then. Until then, take care. Thanks. Thank you for listening to another TAH.org podcast. You can find archives of all our previous programs, as well as information about future programs at TAH.org slash webinars, or on iTunes by searching for teachingamericanhistory.org.